You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Black Tip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conif Allende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And our newest Commodore, Guybrush Threepwood, alias... LeChuck. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the coming weeks, we're going to be moving on from what historians have coined the Buccaneer era of piracy. In more than a few ways, the stories we're about to tell are some of the first of real piracy here on the Pirate History Podcast. There have been acts of piracy and even a few real pirates so far, but Most of our characters have been privateers and had yet to throw off those shackles of empire and the law that later pirates would. The French and English buccaneers in the Pacific that we've been talking about were engaging in piracy, but they still saw themselves as loyal patriots. Those ties to civilization were still there, but they're about to start breaking down. One of the side effects of the separation from the civilized world is a distance from accurate history. Privateers might have the benefit of gentlemen on board that would write of their activities, but pirates rarely did. Most of the stories of pirates that have been passed down to us as legitimate history are, at the best, half-myth. In part, my goal on this show has been to cut through the myths surrounding piracy. I think it's vital to ground pirates and piracy in the real world in which they lived. However, If we look only at the agreed-upon evidence-based facts about pirates, the story grows sterile. It would become a recitation of dates and names, and if I told the story like that, it would take a couple of weeks at best and be unbelievably dry. We can't ignore the myths of piracy. How we see pirates, and how people at the time saw them, defined the pirates, and it even changed the behavior of pirates to come. So we need to look at the myths and legends behind piracy. We need to distinguish between fact and speculation, but we can't discard the speculation or the fictions. This is a problem we've run into before, and it will only get more and more prominent as time moves on. And it's a problem that we have here, at the end of the second Pacific adventure. Without William Dampier, the records get a lot more suspect. Ravno de Lusan is an engaging storyteller, but less of a historian, less of a chronicler. However, he's what we have, so we're going to look at his tale 
for good or ill. This is Episode 70, Truth and Lies. Last time we rushed through 1686 in the story of the Second Buccaneer Incursion into the Pacific Ocean. Edward Davis, Francois Groenet, Jean Rose, George Dew, Pierre Le Picard, and Mathurin de Marte raided up and down the coasts of Central and South America. They all wound up at Drake's Isle, at Isla de Plata, but at different times, as did a Spanish fleet that was built to destroy them. When we left off, Groenet, Picard, de Marte, and Dew had left Drake's Isle. Eight of Edward Davis's men accompanied them, but Davis himself was sailing north in Bachelor's Delight to join them. Their target was Guayaquil. And it was a tempting target. It was a port city that served the mines in the Andes and the nearby plantations. Silver, slaves, coffee, and cocoa flowed from her docks, and they made the city rich. Today, Guayaquil is the largest city in Ecuador, and one of the largest ports on the Pacific coast of South America, though in 1687 it was still part of the Viceroyalty of Peru. But in 1687, Guayaquil was not terribly well defended. Lima was the capital and fortified, but Guayaquil had rarely had to fear invasion. No European powers had ever come here in strength, and all that the city ever had to worry about was piracy. Now, there have been several attempts on Guayaquil by pirates, but most of them were unsuccessful. Back in 1681, the first Pacific adventure raided the city. Charles Swan and John Eaton and Edward Davis, well, they tried for it in 1685, just two years earlier but they had been rebuffed. It wasn't a city defended by an armada and shore batteries and an army and countless fortifications like Lima, but it wasn't without defenses. There were forts, there was a militia and a standing guard. Ravno de Lusanne calls the city Kea which may be a more accurate representation of the 17th century name of the city. I might switch over to that from time to time because I like the way it sounds, and it looks at first glance like quesadilla, but if I read that in a quote from Lusanne, understand that it's the same city. By 11 April 1687, the pirates were in sight of the coast, the mainland coast of South America. In the distance, on the horizon, they saw what was probably that Spanish fleet that had been sent out to deal with them, so they furled their sails to hide from view. Luckily, a fog suddenly arose, which hid both the armada and the pirates from one another, and it allowed the pirates to escape. Four days later, on the 15th, they were at White Cape, or Cabo Blanco. They left some men behind to watch out for Captain Davis. Whenever he arrived in Bachelor's Delight, they would guide him to Guayaquil and the rest of the pirates. Let me describe the Bay of Guayaquil. It's dominated by one large island called Isla del Muerto, Island of the Dead, or Dead Man's Isle. The Isla de Muerta is not an uncommon trope in pirate lore. In the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, the cursed Aztec gold is kept at Isla de Muerta. In Treasure Island, Captain Flint's map names the location of the treasure as Skeleton Island. Usually, in the movies, the Isle of the Dead looks suspiciously like a skull, and in Curse of the Black Pearl, it can't be found except by those who already know where it is hidden. Well, I know where it is hidden. It's in Ecuador, in the Bay of Guayaquil. The Dead Man's Isle in the Bay of Guayaquil doesn't look like a skull. It looks like a body, covered with a shroud. 
The rolling hills on one end suggest a face, and then moving on to a belly, and at the far end there's a mountain peak that looks very much like a pair of feet. It's, when viewed from the right angle, sort of an optical illusion that you can't unsee. When you get closer to the mainland, there is an archipelago of smaller islands, but still large enough for people to live on. By 1687, those islands were home to local Native American tribes. It would be best when the pirates were nearby those islands to avoid them, if at all possible. As you sail north, up the bay, toward the city itself, there will be a delta. A river that is split into many smaller channels. There's three primary channels, but countless tributaries and creeks. Now the coast, once you get beyond the delta, is relatively open lowland, but just to the east, the Andes Mountains dominate the skyline. There is a narrow strip of lowland between the coast and the mountains called the Neck. Now south of that, the land opens up, and north it opens up as well, a bit, but the mountains are always there. They're a constant backdrop to the city of Guayaquil. Now, Guayaquil lies to the north of the Neck, on that river. They call it the Pearl of the Pacific. The pirates disembarked there at Cabo Blanco. They didn't want to take their large ships all the way in. They could have taken them further, but it probably would have elicited notice. So they rowed smaller boats and took single-masted vessels deeper into the bay. They made for a channel between two of the islands in that archipelago, Santa Clara and La Puna. Now those are two of the larger islands. Once they were home to a large shipyard where many of Peru's greatest ships were built and housed. Only 30 years earlier, they had been home to perhaps a dozen 5th and 6th rate ships of the line. Now they weren't a patch on the shipyards at Cadiz or even Cartagena, but they would have kept the pirates at bay. They weren't there to defend against invasion, but it was a safe port at which to build ships that could then be transported to the West Indies or even back to Spain if necessary. But by 1687, those shipyards were quiet. They had been abandoned in favor of better shipyards at Lima. Now, those islands were home to just sleepy fishing villages. They did still have about 40 soldiers garrisoned on Lapuna to watch the approach to Guayaquil, but the pirates knew about those guards, and they knew where they slept from one of the prisoners they had captured earlier. When the pirates put those guards to the question, the guards answered freely. They told Groinet everything they knew about Guayaquil, about her defenses and her layout. This gave Groinet everything he needed to prepare an attack against the city, Except one thing. Last time, we talked about the Spanish fleet that was bearing down on Isla de Plata, searching for the pirates. Now, we know, because we talked about it last time, that that fleet will fail to find the pirates and split up in search of them. And we also know that Edward Davis is going to sail along and stumble into a fight that will turn into a protracted, drunken sea battle with that Spanish flagship. And we know that he will eventually beach her, capture the crew, and remove that frigate from the equation. However, the pirates here in the Bay of Guayaquil on La Puna didn't know any of that. The threat of the Spanish hung over their heads this entire time. They knew that a fleet might sail around the bend at any minute. If they were caught in the bay, they would be caught out in small open boats. And if they were caught on the march, which was a real possibility, at least in their minds that a Spanish army might make landfall and squeeze the pirates between that army and the walls of Guayaquil. 
That threat informed everything that the pirates did here, at least at first. It might have motivated them to move as fast as they did. They might have wanted to get behind the walls of the city before that Spanish army arrived. They split up into four columns, for the march as well as for the attack on the city. Now each of the columns was commanded by one of the most prominent captains in their ranks. Each of the captains and the pirates beneath them had a job to do, according to the plan, and if things went according to that plan, they would take a different part of the city and each of them move in towards the center of town. In the Buccaneers of America, Alexander Exquimelin called the vanguard, the soldiers at the front of the army, the forlorn. But Ravno de Luzon takes it a step further. He calls it the forlorn hope. I like this a lot. It's much more honest. Medieval armies would shower those in the most dangerous positions like the vanguard with promises of glory and honor. At least medieval commanders and medieval writers would. They told the soldiers that they would be remembered in song and were certain to live on eternally in heaven. But pirates had no such notions. To be honest, most regular soldiers probably didn't either. But pirates didn't believe in honor or glory. Many of them didn't believe in heaven. They didn't think any of that was going to be waiting for them. They knew that no one would sing songs of them. Maybe a few drunken pirates would remember them. But after all, somebody has to be in the front of the army. And if you are one of those, well, abandon hope. The forlorn hope was led by Captain Picard, fifty pirates strong. Captain Mathurin de Marte was the commander of the reserves, which were the most heavily armed pirates in the army. Luzon calls them fourscore grenadiers. Now, I'm not a qualified linguist, however fascinated I might be by the activities of a living language. However, people that are qualified linguists usually mark the first recorded use of the English word grenade around the time of the Glorious Revolution in England. We'll be talking about that later, but that happens in about 1688. Here, in 1687, a French writer used the word grenadier. Now, the word grenade comes originally from Latin, as so much of the English language does. Medieval Latin speakers called the pomegranate the pomum, or apple, and granatum, or seeded. Pomum granatum, pomegranate. The French derivation of the word was pomgrenade, and later just grenade. Some French soldiers saw similarities between the seeds in a pomegranate and the gunpowder and shrapnel in the explosive devices that they used. They called them, colloquially, Grenades, and those that used them, Grenadier. Englishmen, once they came to the New World, were surrounded by native French and Spanish speakers, and they picked up the term and called them grenades. A 17th century grenade was just a small cast iron pot. It was filled with rough gunpowder and capped with a wick. Now, sometimes they would put shrapnel in there as well, but not always, and it wasn't necessary. That wick would be lit, and then, either by hand or with a sling, tossed at people that you wanted to kill, or at least to seriously maim. The eighty grenadiers under Captain Marthurin de Marte would have had grenades. They also would have had muskets, or quite possibly heavier guns, like a blunderbuss. Perhaps some of them even carried light artillery. They would 
serve as heavily armed shock troops in this army. Now their role was as a reserve force. Basically the plan was, wherever the fighting was growing too hot, De Marte would march his 80 men in and light the Spanish up. They would throw grenades and fire pots and shoot volleys of large shot at them. Now, Francois Groenet was an ultimate command of the army, and he commanded the main body of the army. But then there was the last force, 50 pirates strong, commanded by, well, whoever it was that took over the captaincy of Captain Townley. Luson calls him George Hewitt, but it was probably George Dew. Those 50 were supposed to capture an outlying fort near Guayaquil. From the walls of that fort, they would be able to guard the retreat of the rest of the army, should that become necessary. In that force, under George Dew, any ensign that managed to raise the flag of the pirates atop the fortress, which would signal the march on Guayaquil for the rest of the army, was to be awarded with 1,000 pieces of eight. Now, originally, the plan was for each of the columns of pirates to approach Guayaquil by boat. They would row upriver to reach the city. However, the pirates didn't know the region, and they timed their first approach poorly. They were defeated by the current. It pushed them back into the bay. They realized, okay, bad timing, let's go back to the island. But once ashore, the pirates were spotted. They didn't realize they'd been spotted, but a house far up on a hill on the mainland suddenly burst into flame. It was a signal fire to Guayaquil. The pirates threw any caution they had had aside. They stormed the beach and charged up the hill. The Spanish soldiers were waiting for them. They fired on the pirates, but there weren't many. Every Spanish soldier that showed his face was shot down. The pirates fought the blaze, and they actually got it out relatively quickly. In total, it had only burned for a few minutes. The French and English once again ran, this time to the nearest tree line. They hunkered down in the trees and they stayed silent. They set out watchmen to keep a keen eye on the city. If the people of Guayaquil had spotted the signal, the usual procedure was to light a return fire, a sign that the original signal had been seen. At least, that would be the procedure in traditional warfare. Someone would light a fire in request of aid, and whoever saw the fire would light a return fire and then march out to give them aid. That would also let the enemy know that reinforcements were coming. That was a scare tactic of sorts. But there was no one out here that needed aid. Only a burned shack, half a dozen dead Spaniards, and maybe 300 pirates. So the pirates weren't sure whether or not the people of Guayaquil would light a return fire if they had in fact seen the original fire. The pirates waited all day. They didn't see any fires lit, nor did they see any columns of Spanish soldiers come out to meet them. It appeared that they had escaped notice and killed anyone that could give warning of their coming. When nightfall came, the pirates slipped out of the tree line and back to the river. They took their boats upstream toward Guayaquil. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. When dawn was close, they made landfall and carried their boats inland and hid them under cover. Then they made camp and slept throughout the day. As the sun sank on the 19th, Groenet ordered six men to stay behind to watch the boats, they were given strict orders, orders not to light fires, not to leave cover. There was to be no singing and no talking. Whispering was okay. If you were a man who snored, stay awake. There were regular patrols near the river, and they would be on sharp lookout, so the orders were to avoid notice at all costs. The rest of the force set off for Guayaquil. However, one of those six men who was left to watch the boats just couldn't abide sitting around all day without having a smoke. He lit a fire. I'm sure it was a small fire. He needed to light his pipe. Now most of the pirates, the main body of the pirates, didn't know that he had lit the fire. What they did know is that the Spanish strictly forbade any of their soldiers lighting fires at night, except while in camp. That's why Groinet had forbidden the lighting of fires. From the direction of the boats, the pirates, the main body of the pirates, heard the sound of a blunderbuss shot, a loud, cracking boom that hung in the air. Then, from the direction of Guayaquil, a thunderous sound. Every cannon in the city fired at once. That blunderbuss was a signal, and this time the army of Guayaquil had received it. The plan, the big plan that they had worked on, now had to be thrown out. There was no need for caution anymore, so the entire force of pirates marched on the city. Now, that's according to Ravno de Lusan, and Lusan is not to be trusted. There are things we can verify in the story. We do know that on 20 May 1687, the French and English buccaneers attacked Guayaquil. There are Spanish records that corroborate this. It happened. However, those records were written by Spanish officials that weren't there. Lusan was there, and his account, well, it is the best we have. It's a first-hand account, but it's filled with lies. 
According to Lusan, the pirates, quote, marched out toward the town with our drums beating, colors flying. Upon our approach, found ourselves stopped by 700 men, end quote. Now, when they marched on the town with drums beating and colors flying, Guayaquil was still some distance off. This wasn't the garrison at the fort or the town militia. This was an army, I suppose. The 700 Spanish soldiers had the advantage of a trench and a barricade. From behind that, they fired on the pirates, and Lusan tells us, quote, They had the boldness to sally out upon us with sword in hand, end quote. That is impetuous. I mean, would you do that? Imagine you had a good barricade, behind which you can duck down into a trench whenever the pirates start shooting. You have well over twice the number of the pirates. Would you sally forth, or would you hang back, keep your defensive advantage, and kill the pirates to a man? Now those numbers may have given the Spanish a sense of hubris. It would be heroic, wouldn't it? Even noble to sally forth into battle. It becomes less heroic when 260-odd buccaneers chase the Spanish off with the ferocity of their firing. Lusan calls what they gave the Spanish a vigorous reception. Now, Lusan has no compunction with fudging the numbers a bit here and there, especially when it makes Spain look cowardly and France look like conquering heroes. This kind of writing found a warm reception back in France, even up to King Louis's court. That may have something to do with why Ravno de Lusan could style himself later in life, Sieur Ravno de Lusan. Now, according to his record, the Spanish army fled to the nearest fort, and the pirates chased them thence from fort to fort until only one of the forts remained. This might be true. But it wasn't 700 men that they were chasing from their high walls filled with cannon. According to Lusan, the battle lasted 11 hours, and in the end the pirates lost only 9 men with 11 wounded. The Spanish, on the other hand, lost hundreds. When all was said and done, after 11 hours of fighting, the forts were captured. And Lusan writes, quote, We sent out several parties at the same time to pursue those that fled while the other Roman Catholics went to sing Te Deum in the great church, end quote. I mean, maybe. Devout Christians would certainly visit the church after a successful battle. The French were Catholic, and the Spanish had Catholic churches. They were different sects of Catholicism, but who's to say that the French wouldn't do that? But I will say that if you were writing a manuscript and you hoped to catch the eye of the Sun King, God's chosen monarch who was notable for his patronage of the arts, including writers, it might do to add a bit of religion to your great defeat against the Spaniard. In reality, the battle there at Guayaquil looked more like this. Governor Juan Alvarez de Avia did see that signal fire. He ordered General Fernando Ponce de Leon to rally the men and stand ready. The pirates' plan to lay low for the day was a good one. By the time that they actually moved against the city, the militia in Guayaquil was wearying. Many of the guards were lax, some of them napping. This allowed George Dew to sail two periaguas to the town docks in the warehouse district. His pirates captured the warehouses and occupied them. That was his job. 
Now Lusan fails to tell us whether or not somebody did raise a flag and get 1,000 pieces of eight. Meanwhile, the Forlorn and the main army, led by Picard and Groenet, well, they let the current carry them past the town. They were supposed to disembark before the gates and march in, as Lusan says, with colors flying and drums drumming, but they didn't. The current carried them too far. When they were finally able to put their boats on shore, they were forced to wade through a marshland to get to dry land, and then they had to take refuge in an abandoned house while their wicks and their powder dried. They waited until morning, and as the sun rose, it began to rain. This gave the general, Ponce de Leon, the chance to advance with 300 soldiers, not 700, and it was a force made up mostly of slaves. All of the commanders were Spanish, but all of the men who had to stand there and die would have been slaves, and those aren't usually men willing to die to defend their master's money. So the pirates charged those 300 men. Several of the pirates jumped over a small rampart between themselves and the Spanish force. They assumed that that was a barricade, but it was difficult to see in the early morning with rain pouring down. It wasn't a barricade, it was a levee, and it led into a canal several feet down and a bit too steep and too wet to climb back up, at least where the fighting was. When they realized their mistake, the rest of the pirates held back and the two forces shot muskets at each other across the canal, but there was really little effect in that battle. But a small group of pirates did sneak upstream, and they waded across the canal, some of them using wooden planks, and they held their guns above their head to keep them dry. They were able to flank the Spanish force. They came in firing from a side street. The general, Ponce de Leon, was wounded, and the Spanish force fell back. See, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for tales of gallant men sallying forth with banners held high to defeat their foe in honorable combat. If I wanted that, I'd read about the Crusades or something. I want stories of pirates, filthy, low-down pirates. I want them sneaking around and outsmarting the honorable enemy, doing whatever it takes to win. The Spanish force pulled back to the town square, where there were reinforcements waiting. Groenet marched the main force of the army toward the square and entered into battle. You know, honorable, stand-up-and-shoot-the-enemy battle. However, Captain Picard was busy circling around the Spanish. It was the same move as before, only this time with way more pirates. Again, the Spanish forces pulled back. This gave Guayaquil's town square and their main thoroughfare, Los Morlacos Street, to the pirates. They pulled back to the last Spanish stronghold near the Dominican monastery in town. The Spanish stronghold was up on a hill, and it put their backs against the heights leading up to the Andes Mountains. Now, on that height they had a rampart and a trench from which there was no way for the pirates to sneak around and surprise them here but there was also no escape. The Spanish had cannon up there. The pirates would be forced to climb the hill to reach them there. It was almost a good plan. The massed Spanish forces, which were now close to 700 at this point, would fire down musket balls and grape shot and cannonballs down at the pirates trying to ascend. It should have worked. The main problem is that they couldn't get their cannons to point down the hill at the right angle. 
They just shot harmlessly over the pirates' heads while they climbed. Now the muskets could reach the pirates. The Spanish musketeers popped their head up from behind cover and fired, wave after wave, at the pirates. It kept the pirates at bay, behind their own cover. But without cannon, the Spanish and the pirates, they were at a stalemate. So Groenet ordered the reserves forward, commanded by Mathurin de Marte, the 80 grenadiers. That force split into two columns and marched around the rest of the pirates on either side of the trench. When they were close, they crawled to get close to the trench near either end. Now, the Spanish saw them coming, but there was only so much you could do when men were low to the ground. Each of the grenadiers lit the wick on his grenade waited for several nerve-wrenching seconds, and then tossed his pomegranate, his cast-iron pot filled with gunpowder, into the trench. At almost the same moment, either end of the trench erupted in smoke and fire and screams. The grenadiers jumped down into the trench and fired their muskets. Some fired the blunderbuss, others a long gun, but they took aim and fired on any Spaniard still standing. Now, the trench was fairly long, and it was filled with soldiers. Even with the grenades and that initial musket volley, the center of the trench was still filled with living men. The grenadiers would have had pistols as well, and sabers. They drew both and rushed toward the center, squeezing the Spanish between their two forces. Now, had that been it, the fight in the trenches, the outcome would have been in doubt. It would have been a hard fight. Men clashing steel, fighting with pistols when they had shot, but then it would have turned into an old-fashioned melee. There were more Spanish soldiers than pirates, but the Spanish were at a disadvantage. However, the grenadiers were not it. They were only there to distract the Spanish. Well, yeah, to kill a bunch of them, but to hold their attention. They were to stay in the trench and fight hard, until the rest of the pirates could march up to the edge of the trench to fire a volley down at the Spanish and then rush the survivors with sabers and bayonets. Now, I know that I have said before that this battle or that battle was the last of the buccaneer era, but don't worry, this is not a starting now kind of situation. Those earlier battles were fought by privateers, buccaneers. This group of men, a year or so earlier, fought one of those battles, and the buccaneers under Lorho de Graff up to the north. But this battle was fought by former privateers. They still had letters of mark, but they were invalid. The Spanish were aware of the fact. They knew that these men were not legitimate privateers any longer, and they made sure that the French were also aware of that fact back in Nicaragua. These men... Somewhere deep in their hearts might think of themselves as privateers, but they are really just pirates. I'd also like to remind you, before all of the unpleasantness that's to come, that these pirates wanted to leave the Pacific. They wanted to return home, months back. According to Luzon and the letters of two Spanish governors, they tried to do so, but the Spanish hadn't allowed them to. Now, I get it. If a bunch of fools came into my house and ate all my bananas and rifled through my wallet, I'd want to get back at them. If they tried to leave with what was in my wallet, a part of me might want to stop them. But if they had guns, it might just be the smart move to cut my losses and let them go. 
allow the cops to find them later. Now that doesn't make what follows the battle at Guayaquil the fault of the Spanish, especially not the victims here in Guayaquil. They had nothing to do with the actions of other Spanish people up in Nicaragua. It's still on the pirates. They did it. But just a little bit. It's the fault of the fools up in Nicaragua who wouldn't let the pirates leave. So the pirates had possession of Guayaquil. Now, the battle didn't last 11 hours. Perhaps it was 11 hours from the time that they set out to attack the city that morning, but the battle was over by about 11 a.m. There were somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 men defending the city, but that grand march against all 700 soldiers never took place. These were not knights riding into battle with drums drumming and pennants flying. The Spanish did not sally forth to do battle. The Spanish hid in a hole until you threw grenades at them. But that's not what the Sun King wants to hear. Possessing a city is not enough to hold a city. There is a population full of people that do not want you there. If you want to hold a city, you have to subdue the population. If you want to ransack a city, your tactics will be different. Next time, we're going to talk about the occupation of Guayaquil, and we're going to follow the pirates from Guayaquil, out of the Pacific Ocean, and back home. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, either by becoming a patron on Patreon or by leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you listen to the show. Everyone who has donated to the show through the website, without all of your help, I couldn't do this. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight